0: Hello, and welcome to Tuesdays at APA Chicago, our monthly after hours lecture series held at APA's Burnham Conference Center. My name is David Morley. I'm a research associate at APA and host of Tuesdays at APA Chicago. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. Selected past programs are also available as podcasts. See the APA website for additional details. Tonight, we have with us Frank Rayon from Location Decision Advisors. Frank is a former city planning director for communities in Ohio and California. A geographer by degree, he provides planning and development, as well as retail and restaurant site selection consulting services. Frank is a Maramont resident, the past president of the Maramont Preservation Foundation, and the primary author of Maramont's Vision 2021 document. Riverside, Illinois, and Maramont, Ohio are two acclaimed examples of early planned communities. Riverside's plan was created in 1869 by Frederick Law Olmsted, the designer of New York City's Central Park, and John Nolan developed the town plan for Maramont in 1921. Both communities have been designated National Historic Landmarks. Frank is here tonight to present an overview of Olmsted, Nolan, and the two communities, and he will explain why the design principles used in Riverside and Maramont merit not only further consideration, but potential incorporation into the development patterns and character of communities today. Please join me in welcoming Frank Rayon.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for coming out in this humid weather. Uh, it's hard to believe because you think of Chicago being a lot cooler than Cincinnati. When I talked to my daughter this afternoon, who I'm happy to say lives in Chicago. And uh, she was telling me about the forecast. And I already knew getting off the bus, I took the mega bus up, how humid it was. But Cincinnati's actually cooler today by five or six degrees in Chicago. Can't believe it, just my luck. As I get started, one of the things I'd like to say is if you have questions, because some of these slides I'll go through fairly quickly, and some of them I'll linger on, so if there's some questions that you want to just jot down, and then we can get to those during the Q&A. Or if there's a slide that you'd like to revisit, I'll be staying afterwards for a few minutes. I'd be happy to do that with you. And typically, when I give presentations, I like to learn a little bit about the audience. And so I'm going to ask a couple of questions here. Um, number one, um, does anybody live in Riverside? Oh, that's great. Now. Okay, that's great. Um, one of you is the mayor, I understand. Mayor, welcome. Thank you. You've got a wonderful community. Glad I'm here. <laughs> okay. And I'm assuming that most of you have visited Riverside. Is that correct? Okay. It's one of those communities that's wonderful that makes a first impression, which is very positive. And it's the kind of place you want to return to on a regular basis. I'm happy to say I was up in Riverside and, uh, over the Memorial Day holiday walking, talking, and just basically enjoying myself. Has anybody here ever been to Marymount by any chance? Okay, well, I didn't expect that would be the case, and I want to tell you that Marymount is very much like Riverside. It's one of those places where when you drive into it, your heartbeat goes down, your blood pressure goes down, and a smile breaks out on your face. And one of the reasons for that is the character of the village and also because of the plan, because of John Nolan's plan. We're an open-space community, very much like Riverside. We've got tons of open space. And as you come into the village, you come in from another place that is your prototypical strip. You just can't wait to get out of. So that's the kind of community that I'm going to be talking about. Both communities share that. Frederick Law Olmsted was the premier landscape architect of his era, and really the landscape architecture. And he, I'm going to talk about a little bit in terms of his other assignments, but this was the fellow that designed Central Park in New York. He was already a giant when he came to Riverside. And this is Riverside's wonderful town plan. And I'm not really going to come back to this slide, but I will say that When Daniel, uh, when uh, Frederick Law Olmsted first came to Chicago, he said, "And don't quote me on this. That the redeeming feature of Chicago was its lake. He didn't see anything else that really excited him. But I think once he got out to Riverside and saw the Desplaines River, saw the forested area out there, he felt differently. Now, as you all know, he was a fellow that loved to talk about topography." and letting his street designs follow topography. But in Riverside, unless I've missed something, it's really relatively flat. You might have a little undulation here and there. But I think this is what Olmsted wanted to do, is he wanted to, right off the bat, create something very different, something special, something that put his touch on it, because he did not like the grid street system. And of course, what do you have on Manhattan? In Central Park, you've got a surrounding of nothing but grid streets. And he was a guy that loved the country, and so I think Riverside is one of those general plans that he created that he wanted to immediately differentiate from a lot of other suburbs and from Chicago in particular. And John Nolan, here's another giant of his era, and he was born the same year that Frederick Olmsted Sr. started work in Riverside. Both of these fellows incidentally had sons who followed them into their careers. This is Marymount's town plan, and the way I'm gonna differentiate this from the curvilinear street systems that you saw on Riverside, is that you'll see a formality. You'll see this village square area, which is right here, that has a radial pattern. Now, like Olmsted, Nolan traveled extensively throughout Europe. And he was not only a fan of the English countryside, but he was a big fan of Germany. As a matter of fact, he even has an advanced degree, earned an advanced degree in Germany. And uh, he was the type of fellow who started off, like Olmsted, designing people's estates. He did a great job, and then he moved up the ladder, so to speak and establish a wonderful reputation for him. When he designed Marymount, starting in 1920, he was the premier planner in the United States at the time. Riverside is located nine miles west of Chicago's Loop. Marymount's 10 miles east of downtown Cincinnati. Where There's a big difference here in terms of the era that these two communities were created, but I think that they've aged very well. And whereas Riverside was planned as a railroad suburb elite community, Marymount was really planned for the working class. Mary Emery was a rich widow. She had the second largest real estate fortune in the United States at the time. She lost both her sons and her husband, and she had all this money. She was a patron of the Cincinnati Art Museum, Cincinnati Zoo, and quite frankly, she wanted money on families. She wanted to create something special. And so Marymount was her legacy, and it became John Nolan's legacy as well. But you'll see one thing up here about the trolley suburb and the automobile, because really, Riverside is a railroad car suburb, 20-minute ride from what I've read. I've not been on the train from Riverside to downtown or the Loop. But Marymount was really the first planned suburb during the automobile age. It also had a trolley line that worked, and so Mary Emery started off building right alongside the trolley line. And so if you worked in downtown or you wanted to shop in downtown Cincinnati, it was very easy for you if you didn't have a car, which you probably didn't, to get on that trolley line. So it just goes to show you the important influence that transportation has had in the formulation of our communities. This is the famous William LeBaron Jenny water tower. Um, and then this is Marymont's hotel. This is a community of 3,400. This was built by the Marymont Company. Uh, and it became their offices eventually. Uh, today, it is not only a first class hotel. If you want to stay there, it's going to cost you about $170 a night. Procter & Gamble sends a lot of their visiting executives here. Um, But it's a place that also has meeting rooms and a great restaurant called The National Exemplar. It would be a little bit like uh, La Peep or, um, I've eaten at some of these other great restaurants in Chicago, but it's more or less what I would call breakfast, lunch, as opposed to evening, uh, although it does an evening business as well. Both of these communities are special and have been recognized as such. They both have historic districts on the register. In addition, Marymount is a, on the National land, Historic Landmark, designated in 2007. My predecessor on the Marymount Preservation Foundation, Millard Rogers, worked for years to get us there. And uh, it's something that we take a lot of pride in. There aren't that many communities that have made it as national landmarks. One of the distinguishing features about Merrimont, in addition to its architecture, is the fact that this Old Town Historic District really drew talent in terms of design from all over the East Coast as well as Cincinnati. We didn't have some of these giants like Frank Lloyd Wright and William LeBaron Jenny living in Cincinnati, but John Nolan had relationships, and his office was on Cambridge Square near the Harvard campus in Cambridge. He was used to working with a lot of architects. Basically, Charles Livinggood, who was the fellow who ran the Marymount Company for Mary Emery, the blank checkbook. And so she spent money and he spent money to hire the best. And this is part of our legacy. Just like you had the top design talent, we were fortunate to have great architects as well as a great town planner. And APA has recognized us as one of America's great places. And we've been given, like Riverside, a National Planning Landmark Award. This incidentally was um, our former recreation building. It's got that Italian tower. It's a real centerpiece. It's now functioning more as a church and a meeting place for the village. for, For instance, when we were doing Vision 2021, we had a lot of resident summit meetings there. A little bit of a contrast in terms of population in Marymont and Riverside. You're bigger than we are, um, but we're both small towns. We're both classified as villages. From a racial standpoint, we're both basically Caucasian. From an owner-occupied housing standpoint, this is where we're a little bit different. We've got a lot more rental housing than you do. Now, when I was in Riverside, I did stop and talk to, at the Historical Society, and when I told her, that we had 39% rental housing. Her mouth went, that much? Well, really, and I'm gonna tell you that outside of a 16-unit apartment building, we don't have any big apartments in Marymount. They're all two-family, four-family, six-family, very small scale. What defines Marymount is small scale. It's a village, and it really guards that type of scale very carefully. Median household income, Riverside is a little more affluent. Certainly the home values are different, in part because I think Chicago will be a little bit higher value than Cincinnati. But we're both brainy suburbs as well. We attract educated people to our communities. And I like to call these brainy communities. I think Marymont is, when I take a look at statistics, one of the very most educated bachelor's, master's, and professional degree communities in the state of Ohio. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I call both of these communities jewels. They're the kind of places that really um, have this strong sense of place. And I'm not going to go through every one of these. I'll let you look at those for a minute. When I was talking to David a little bit earlier, I said one of the things that I liked when I was in Riverside were all the people that were out on their bikes people who were out with their dogs, people that were just out enjoying themselves, crossing that pedestrian bridge that you have over the Des River. It struck me as being very similar to Marymount because that's what Marymont is. And that's why a lot of people, especially professional people, move to Marymont. They want that walkability. They want to get on their bikes. They want to have some fun. They don't want to have to be challenged by the automobile. And so sense of place and activity, Those two really kind of frame our communities. Of course, here's a famous house in Riverside. And Daniel Burnham, a giant, certainly, and the fellow who talked about make no little plans, came up with another beautiful quote, good design is good business. And both Marymount and Riverside understand how important that is because these communities reflect the design from a house standpoint, but from an open space standpoint, a street standpoint, a building standpoint, design sells and design counts. This is interesting because I know, without going into detail, that Olmsted had a long-term working relationship in the Chicago region. He wasn't here just for these two. He planned some parks as well. But here's Frederick Law Olmsted being described by Daniel Burnham, who he worked with on the Columbian Exposition um, to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Columbus's landing in America. I think this is very appropriate, and I'm just going to read it. An artist, he paints with lakes and wooded slopes, with lawns and banks and forest-covered hills. I think Olmsted had a vision and a talent that was immense. And I've learned a lot about him in preparation, quite frankly, for this presentation. But I remain in awe of this fellow. There are some buildings, uh, the junior high school, the edge of downtown with some commercial mixed use, and then of course the train station. And that's how I first became familiar with Riverside is because I came out to Chicago in 2009, and I went on a field trip for continuing education to Riverside, and I was just blown away. I was always the guy that was catching up with the group because I couldn't click enough pictures. And here's some of the things that Frederick Law Olmsted did. I'll be in Boston. I've been in Boston before, but I've never really spent any time thinking about Frederick Law Olmsted in Boston. And, of course, he lived right outside of Boston in Brookline, Massachusetts. But this is really where he became famous, was Central Park in New York. And if you've ever been to New York City and Central Park, just a phenomenal place. But this fellow was a phenomenal talent. And of course, he had associates. So when I don't mention Calvert Vaux, I don't, I don't mean to slight him. But, um, Olmsted was something special, someone special. Now, Buffalo, Louisville, Seattle. So he created some gems in other communities. I know in Louisville, they celebrate those parks. And I've been into a couple of them and they are special. I grew up in western New York and used to go to Buffalo all the time, used to go to Niagara Falls for special occasions. My cousins lived near the Delaware Park Zoo, which was designed, that whole area by Frederick Law Olmsted. Never really knew it until I started preparing for this presentation. This is the Biltmore Grounds. Um, I'm hoping a lot of you have been to Asheville, North Carolina, a very special place, and you've been to the Biltmore Mansion. Well, while he wasn't the architect, he was the landscape architect, and the grounds are fabulous, the views are fabulous, the gardens are fabulous. Um, again, he had a chance to showcase his talents, and he was doing this about the same time as the Columbian Exposition. Now, the sad thing is that Olmsted was basically at the pinnacle of his career. And after these two gems, the exposition and Biltmore, his health started to decline. And so it won't be any more than 10 years, and he's going to have left us. And he went downhill very fast. I lived out in California for five years, and. Uh, David and I were talking a little bit about the weather. I kind of wish I was back in California given this humidity. But here's Olmsted again, designing the campus for Stanford University. And so this was a fellow that whether it was streets and parks, campuses, um, this fellow was a giant. There wasn't anything that he couldn't do in my estimation. His vision was just immense. I've been on Cornell's campus and I always used to think that that was the prettiest place in the world, but. If you've never been to Miami of Ohio, in Oxford, Ohio, that's another pretty place, gorgeous. Let's see. Okay. The Riverside Improvement Corporation. When I I've got flow there, Frederick Law Olmsted, but they purchased 1,600 acres. That's immense. And of course, Chicago was growing very, very fast. And Emery Childs, who was the head of the RIC, was really looking at creating something out here that was special, and that's why he hired Frederick Law Olmsted. Olmsted wanted to create a middle landscape, the best of the city and the country. And he wanted to create something greatly superior to any other near Chicago. I've got to tell you, Chicago's got a lot of great suburbs. And I classify Riverside in there but Chicago's got a lot of great suburbs, and I don't know if maybe they were influenced in part by Riverside. This is interesting because most of the times, consultants are paid on the basis of a fee, like Frederick Law said was for the Columbian Exposition. He really made a significant amount, he made a small fortune off the Columbian Exposition. But for here, because lots weren't selling quickly, and because the fees weren't being generated, he and calvert vote decided that they would be compensated in lots. And unfortunately, they never really made a lot of money in Riverside. Um, and it was just because there were some other things going on, some other dynamics. I think this is interesting when you look at Lewis Mumford and what he had to say about Riverside. I mean, that's an extreme compliment. And I don't know of any other community, quite frankly, that I've ever been in that has that street system, that has that focus on open space. Um, he definitely created a legacy. And this was really his goal, leaving and happy tranquility. Open space, whether it was active or passive, when I was there, the swim club had just opened. A lot of activity going on. It was fun. I was walking. People were waving. It's a nice, friendly community. That's the way Marymount is, too. But there's so much open space in Riverside, it really dominates your impressions. Now, this is interesting. I never knew this before. I never drew a distinction between roads and streets. But Olmstead did. These straight streets, I think, were, again, a little bit of a reaction to Chicago. And the curvilinear streets were, again, a little bit of something where he wanted to play his creativity. This is the Riverside Improvement Company's building. It's just a little bit south of the railroad tracks. Is that right? And this is where there's a nice little cluster. I love being in that library, visiting the Frederick Law Olmsted uh, section of the library. Uh, I love seeing those little bikes and that bike rack out there. And right next door is City Hall. And uh, it's just a very, very well-designed area. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about commercial development because that is a little bit of a separation point between Riverside and Marymount. We've got a lot going on from a commercial standpoint, especially nighttime activity or a place you want to be in the evening. But here's William LeBaron Jenny, who actually became then kind of the superintendent, the construction manager for Riverside and actually moved to the community from Chicago. And supposedly he designed the first steel skyscraper structure. That's what I've read. And I love this house. Any of you live there in that house? No? Everywhere I go by there, I have to drive by a second or a third time. And what's interesting to me is, you know, Cincinnati's on the edge of horse country because Lexington, Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky are big, big places for horses. But this is, I don't know if you can see it, but horse statue, horse statue. And I thought that was really unusual. And I don't, I think at one time it goes back to Riverside's history because this used to be a horse farm in part. And so this house could have dated to the 1860s, 1870s, that type of thing. Um, but anyways, valuable lots. He understood the beauty of natural uh, open space as something that would pump up real estate values. Two of my favorite houses, um, one in the smaller lot section, and I don't know my street names, unfortunately. And then this is uh, uh, more in that loop where the famous architects were the this Plains River wraps around a little peninsula. Um, lots of variety in housing. That's another thing that I really enjoy about Riverside. Uh, it really differentiates itself. And that was the thing about housing that was built back in the late 1800s and early 1900s and even before then. There weren't big developers that came in that bought a 100 acres and developed a lot of houses that basically looked the same, In certain cases, they would sell to other builders, and so you create some diversity. But in these days, people weren't buying 50 lots at a time. They were buying two or three lots, or somebody was buying a lot to build a custom home. And so that's what I like about Riverside, too, is that there's no sameness. There's no homogeneity to Riverside. It's very different, very refreshing. And again, just an example of some homes and the architectural variety. And then a classy apartment building reminds me very much of what my daughter just moved out of recently. Um, Like this little footbridge, I'm I'm wondering why we don't have one in Marymount that crosses the Little Miami River, which is a scenic and wild river. uh, And something that... uh, we haven't taken advantage of like you have. When John Nolan planned the community, we were gonna have a nine hole golf course there until the floods of 1937, and then it no longer was used for golf course purposes. And today, we're just starting to see that from our Vision 2021 plan as an amenity, a tremendous asset. Even though there's some floodplain there, the bottom line is it's got lots of opportunities. You know, when we put together this plan, One of my greatest joys is we talked to students. We went to the high schools, the junior high, and we talked to fourth graders. Those fourth graders, they were all raising their hand at the same time, and the teacher was saying, okay, we'll go row by row. They gave us a tremendous amount of ideas on what we could do. And actually, somebody came up and thanked me. It was a student, and she said, "You know, typically adults don't ask, we young people, for our opinions, thank you very much. Well, we at the Marymount Preservation Foundation, even though we're celebrating the history of our community, and most of our members are like myself, gray hairs, we really need to encourage younger people to become members. And one of the ways that you can become a member is to get excited about assignments. So we hope to work again with the students as we hopefully begin implementation of Vision 2021. I'm gonna start going through these a little faster uh, because quite frankly, I have a tendency to elaborate more than I should sometimes. So this is why lot sales were slow in Riverside. Flyway speculation, Emory Childs just thought the market was gonna take off, it never did. The Great Chicago Fire of 1871, the Panic of 1873. And this is when Olmsted negotiated his release from his contract. So he was really there for a very short period of time. But his legacy lives on with that wonderful, general plan that he created. You may know that Ebenezer Howard, who was the father of the Garden City movement in England, lived in Chicago for a couple of years. He had actually emigrated out to Nebraska and decided that he didn't want to live in Nebraska, he wanted to come to Chicago, he was a stenographer. And we seem to think that he might have been influenced a little bit by Riverside in his planning. Now John Nolan would become America's most prolific planner. And because of their stature, both Olmstead and Nolan are recognized by the American Planning Association as national planning pioneers. This is interesting to me, 20% of America's population in 1860 was urban. By 1920, it had more than doubled. 1920 is about the era of Marymount starting. 1860, were just a little bit before Riverside, so we were very rural, becoming much more urban. And this industrialization of America is what caused that change, and you can see from an automobile registration how significant the change was, and again, when Olmsted designed, it was the train. When John Nolan designed in Marymount, he had to contend with the automobile. Even some of our apartments, our townhomes, have garages. Attached garages, not detached. Some of them have detached. But Nolan, that was his concession. He knew times were changing. Nolan enrolled in 1903 in Harvard. And who was one of his instructors? Frederick Law Olmstead, Jr., Flo's natural son. Well, John Nolan became a fan of the Garden City movement. He also became fast friends with Sir Raymond Unwin, who designed Letchworth. Later, Unwin's son would work for John Nolan. Our sister city in Marymount, thanks to the MPF, the Marymount Preservation Foundation, and our Vision 2021, is Hampstead Garden Suburb, which is on the northern side of London. It's much more like a Riverside than a Marymount because we're a middle-class community to this day, although we tend to be more of an upper-middle-class community. Hampstead Garden suburb is a very upscale community. Here are some of the assignments that John Nolan was involved in. San Diego several times, basically Balboa Harbor, Charlotte, North Carolina. If you've ever been to Myers Park, Myers Park is comparable to anything that you have in Chicago on the North Shore, believe me. Madison, Wisconsin, Bridgeport, Connecticut, Clearwater, Florida. I'm going to read this quote from Clinton Rogers Woodruff who spoke about John Nolan. Remember, John Nolan was involved in a lot of comprehensive plans and town plans. But he says... And it sounds a little hokey, but I I hope you'll, you'll understand who he was describing. One might write of him as someone wrote of Leonardo. As other artists made pictures or music or books or palaces for God or man, so he loved to compose a city. And I think that was his talents. And he planned over 400 communities. I mean, when the Florida land rush started, in the 1920s, that railroad boom brought people down there. Those communities, left and right, he was involved in. That was basically his second career was designing communities and subdivisions in Florida. I get a kick out of this. How many of you are planners? Well, that's great. Then you can all identify with this quote. What is needed in American city planning? Nolan answered everything he was the first champion for comprehensive planning and also a strong advocate for zoning remember zoning was just about to come in just before he started planning Marymount just about that same era Nolan had an open space standard this is our former golf course area along the little Miami River that we hope to see become multiple use and we have a lot of open space again not as much as you have in Riverside, but enough to differentiate us from a lot of other suburban communities, both passive and active. The small communities were really Nolan's focus. This is where he wanted to spend most of his time, because like all of us in planning, we're frustrated when there's no implementation. You know, we come up with these grand plans, we go through this process, and a lot of times there's not the proper buy-in, for a number of reasons about impact and implementation. And what you understand about the early roots of planning is most planners never worked for a city. They worked for private individuals, or they were hired by chambers of commerce, or by development companies. It wasn't really until the 1920s and beyond that there were city planners that worked basically for cities. Kingsport, Tennessee was really a very celebrated new town that he designed down there. And that led, I think, in part, to his being given the award for Marymount. Venice, Florida. I've never been to Venice, Florida, but I want to go there. A lot of people have said it's very special, including the people at Duaney, Platter, and Zyberg. Well, this fellow was a president of a number of different organizations, and that'll give you an idea of his stature. And he was also an honorary member of the Town Planning Institute, Which I think was an extremely high honor. Maybe this was because of his friendship with Raymond Unwin, Sir Raymond Unwin, but it just demonstrates to me that people recognize his his immense talent as well. The American City Planning Institute uh, was formed in 1917, and it's interesting to me when I took a look at that in terms of composition. Again, you know, planners, uh, we were an emerging profession. Before us, there were landscape architects and architects and engineers. And, of course, as many of you know, a lot of the subdivisions and communities that are laid out today are not done by planners. They're done primarily by engineers, sometimes by landscape architects. And I know because I worked for a very large firm as their director of planning and zoning in Cincinnati, where our primary designers even though we had two landscape architects, we're engineers. We don't have the same values that we do in planning. Okay? The Shortest distance between two points is a straight line, so I don't think they could identify real well with John Nolan or with Frederick Law Olmsted. But look at this, no city planners. Harvard played a major role both in 1900 and 1929, establishing the first landscape architecture school and then the first city planning program in the United States. And Nolan was one of those lecturers. And I always put an emphasis, quite frankly, um, universities today, and there's an immense amount of talent in Chicago and in Cincinnati, need to take advantage of the practitioners who are out there. Because you've got experiences to contribute. And too many times, students go through college with not a lot of practical experience because they didn't have instructors, in part, who had worked in the real world. So to me, Right here in the 20s, Harvard set the bar high. Let's hire these guys who are the giants in their field and let them teach students, something that we should be doing more of today. Here's Mary Emery. This is that rich widow that I was telling you about. And um, she was very influenced by this Garden City movement, and it became her model for a new community. She had a fellow by the name of Charles Livingood She had two sons that died early. And so after her husband died and her two sons died, Charles Livingood became kind of a surrogate son for her. And uh, he had gone to college at Harvard with one of her sons. And she basically asked him to travel Europe and travel throughout the United States and come back with his ideas on what were the best elements that he saw that could be incorporated into a plan for Marymount. I've been to one of these communities, and I hope to visit the others. As I mentioned, Hampstead Garden Suburb is our sister city. Bourneville is where they make Cadbury chocolates. If you ever go out there, go for that tour. It's a lovely community. And the chocolate is first class. Here's a... Big distinction between Marymount and Riverside. The Riverside Improvement Company was established as a for-profit. Mary Emery never foresaw any profit being made in Marymount. Before she died, she'd spent $7 million. I don't know what that's the equivalent of today in Marymount. Building streets, completing infrastructure. You know, there was free steam heat for all the village residents um, in that community. This Marymount company really wanted to create something special, and she just, whatever living good, whatever Nolan wanted, she basically authorized. And so Marymount, you'll see in some of these slides, really has a rich heritage. Our village square is the heart of the village. We've got a very small square. It's an active place, a good place to be. Right across it is a cinema restaurants, Grader's ice cream. I don't know if anybody's ever had Graters ice cream. You can buy it at Whole Foods up here. Supposed it was Oprah Winfrey's favorite. That's what I was told. But uh, I did some work for Grader's in site selection. And they um, are now in 4,000 grocery stores across the country. And it's just wonderful ice cream. Anyways, that's another reason why people come to Marymount is for Grader's ice cream right there on the square. This is an aerial photo of Marymount. And basically what it shows is the formality, the boulevards, the open space. I was telling David, here right in the heart of our village, we've got a huge beach forest that will always remain open space. Even Nolan, though, in his plan didn't have it remaining entirely open space. But that's part of the character of Marymount. We're a tree city. And you're not going to travel any street without seeing lots of streets and street canopy, uh, street trees and street canopy, tree canopy. This is the village square. Um, this is a cinema. And uh, it's just a lively place to be. I'm going to have to rush through a few of these. Um, this is an example of Marymount at night. Because I, I tell people when I talk to them about how to revitalize communities, I'm a retail and a restaurant guy. My company, Location Decision Advisors, I spent a lot of time in commercial real estate working with mom and pops, regionals and nationals. And I learned a lot from the big boys, the Walgreens, the McDonald's, the Starbucks, that type of thing, the blockbusters. and. Um, tell people that restaurants, I kind of qualify it as the four R's, but you need residential because without residential, you can't sustain retail and restaurants. But retail and restaurants are part of that, okay? And then recreation is the other thing. But here in Marymount, we've got all kinds of restaurants, and so this is why at night at 6 o'clock, 6 o'clock till 10 o'clock, Greater stays open till 11 o'clock, we're a booming suburb. You can go throughout Cincinnati, even Fountain Square in downtown Cincinnati has some activity. But if you want to be in a special place at night, especially on weekends, Marymont's the place to be. This is our bell tower, Carillon Bell Concerts, every Sunday and on special holidays. It was a gift. Um, it's a Mary Emery bell tower is what it is. It's part of our architectural heritage. We've got a lot of amenities in the community. Um, This is one of our special advantages in my estimation. I'm an amenities planner. I like having amenities incorporated into zoning. I like to work with developers and say, this is what we value, and if you can give us this, we can work with you in terms of flexibility. It's kind of that PUD model. The concourse, this is where we celebrate a lot of the events. Um, This overlooks the little Miami River Valley. Here's the Marymount Preservation Foundation. Next month we'll have our annual taste. It's very much a family affair. You can see all the bikes. Um, This is our Old Town Historic District. Again, the heritage that goes back to England. Here's a Cotswold-style home. This is a duplex. We've got a lot of that type of housing in our historic district. We don't have a lot of single-family homes in our historic district. It's mostly rental housing. But we have some lovely single-family homes. Again, uh, the tradition, this happens to be a duplex, and it's on Albert Place, which was named after Mary Emery's deceased son. Um, These all front on single-loaded street with open space, Miami Bluff, or they back up to Dogwood Park. Again, Frederick Law Olmsted understood the importance of public open space. Same thing John Nolan. Give people open space. We'll spend more money. All of our utilities were placed underground. Unless we annexed, and this is in the 1920s, we don't have telephone poles, but power poles in Marymount. Um, Now, there will be a slide that will show you some in a minute. This is our duplex. uh, These are single-family homes, but um, this is Sheldon Close, another street that was named after her sun, and this is our largest apartment building in Marymount. This is the 16 units. This is right next to the trolley line. This is one block off the village square. So Nolan built density around the square, and he built density around wherever there was transportation. Okay, this is an area that was annexed, and you can see the old trolley line. Today it's an open space linear park. If you go into the community that's next to us, it's a bike trail. And then we have the little Miami bike trail less than a mile away that has 70 miles of bike way, and we're going to hook up with that. Uh, I'd love to see it come through here, but there are a lot of people that don't want to see the bikeway come through here. And it's kind of unfortunate my estimation, but it's not going to happen. This was the first building built in Marymount, and I want you to read that bottom line about 14th century England. Because while this was built, the tiles, the stone tiles all came from England. Again, Mary Emery did not look at hoarding money, she looked at spending money. And so she authorized the shipment of these, the purchase and the shipment. Even our boathouse, like you had a boathouse in Riverside, has got these stone tiles, our Marymount Inn. Most of our character in the historic district, stone tiles. So we've got really the oldest roof in America, if you look at those tiles, maybe with the exception of some Native American places. And again, this is just a little architectural variety. This is on Beach Street. These are the fellows, this architectural firm that also designed a lot of the Miami University campus in Oxford, Ohio. These are new condos. These are condos that go for sale from a half a million to a million dollars and up. And they sit right across from that open space that I said Nolan wasn't planning to preserve in its entirety, but it's right on the edge of downtown. And when he sells, Rick Grywe, he sells walkability, and he sells charm, and he sells restaurants and entertainment. And that's what we're banking on from an economic development standpoint. We've had some old apartment buildings that were built in the '50s with no character, Right behind these are those similar apartments. Some of those are coming on down. Well, I'm not going to spend any time differentiating the grid from the spider web or the radial, but Nolan was very influenced by Europe. Places where that radial street system, even Washington, D.C. And so that's why our street system is a little more formal than Riverside's. Again, just some duplexes on Albert Place and Sheldon Close. The reason I wanted to point those out is the legacy of her sons. Everybody knows about the Emery's in Marymount. We have a docent program at the Marymount Preservation Foundation. We're beginning in the third grade. We bring students out. We also have a famous Indian dig. Uh, the, the Peabody Museum at Harvard University has a lot of those relics. So we've got a couple of special things in addition to our, our heritage here. Um, I'm going to wrap this up uh, in just a couple of minutes here. Uh, again, with the exception of some recently built condominiums located near the village square, many of Marymont's most desirable and most expensive homes either border or are located very close to public open space. This is Frederick Law Olmsted, his influence in Marymont. I think Olmstead could visit Marymount. I think he'd be pleased. Our tax base includes an industrial park, 45 acres. I can walk out some mornings, and there's the Keebler Cookie Factory, and gosh, it's a great smell. It just wafts down the street. Um, but we've got lots of other things, too. And uh, we've got high taxes, uh, very high taxes, because we've got one of the outstanding school systems in the state of Ohio, And that's why young people move there. That's why families move there. It's in part because of what we've got and what I've shown you, but it's really also partnering with the school systems. Communities without great schools are challenged. There was one regret that Nolan had about green belts because, as you know, the English Garden City Movement believed in having this wide green belt. And he thought that starting in Kingsport, Tennessee, without it, there was cancerous peripheral growth. And you can see that in the community next to us. That's just a regular strip. And I was telling David, and I'm, John Nolan would not like this if he came back to Marymount, my house backs up to Dogwood Park. When John Nolan designed Park Lane and Harvard Acres, he did not have any houses on the park side of the street. But when the Marymount Company, after Mary Emery died, and they went out of business, there were some new lots that were created. My Lot was one of them, created in 1941. And so in 1993, we built a house that was going to look like 70. It was 70 years old to fit on the street. But John Nolan, if he came back, would be very unhappy to see that. And of course, Marymount, the death of Mary, and then the Great Depression. John Nolan thought that this was the most worthwhile project that he'd ever had the privilege of being involved in professionally. I don't know if you said that to other communities like San Diego and Madison, Wisconsin. (laughs) And then DBZ that I mentioned, they visit Marymount on a regular basis. Um, Quite frankly, they use a lot of Marymount. I didn't show you a slide of Elm Street, which has got the front porches and the alley-loaded backyard. And then I'll leave you with this in terms of closing information. Uh, John Nolan talking about planning. I think we can all identify with that. And then I go back to Chicago for the conclusion here, how much John Nolan admired Chicago and Daniel Burnham. And there's no doubt in my mind that he visited the Columbia Exposition. Now, what's interesting to me is that there was also a depression in 1893, but that didn't stop people from coming to the great white city and visiting. And it spawned the City Beautiful movement, the progressive era. There's so much about Chicago, quite frankly, that's a foundation for planning in our heritage, starting with Riverside. Thank you very much. Thanks, Frank. Thank
0: just as a reminder, as we open this up to Q&A, just put your hand up, and I'll come to you with the microphone so we can record your questions.
2: <laughs> Thank you. I enjoyed your presentation. You're always things to learn. Um, Merriman, 3,400 people, you emphasize the 6 to 10 p.m. crowd entertainment restaurants. Yes. Uh, What's your proximity to traffic? How do you you accomplish that? We struggle with that where we're at.
1: We are on U.S. 50, and U.S. 50 is a major east-west highway that goes from Sacramento, California, all the way out to uh, basically Delaware and the Atlantic Ocean. But that brings a lot of traffic our way, probably about 25,000 cars a day that go through Marymount. But we're a regional destination. Indian Hill, which is just up Miami from us, Miami Road, is the richest community in the state of Ohio. Okay. We are their playground. That's where they come to eat, that's where they come to buy fine wines, specialty beers, go to the cinema. We also um, are a playground for other people that live in some of these newly emerged suburban areas where there is no there there and so because we've got this infrastructure in place that's very diverse uh, and we're the type of place where as i was telling david with the exception of some banks and one starbucks every name there is local kind of like what you've got in riverside from what i saw when i walked you've got the candy the ice cream that type of thing so What's happened is with the hotel, of course, Procter & Gamble helps us out. That hotel brings a lot of well-heeled people. They love the charm. We get a lot of foreign people that come to the village. They tend to stay. It's really the restaurants. I can't emphasize enough how important restaurants are. And As a village, if you want to attract, believe in some of these entrepreneurs. If there's some way that you can give them a grant or if there's some way that they can partner, these entrepreneurs will bring nightlife to your village uh, through their restaurants.
0: uh, Was there any sort of connection between Marymount and then, like you said, this Indian Hill development that kind of happened next to it? Did Marymount influence the investment in Indian Hill and then sort of spawn sort of some synergies?
1: Mary Emery, um, you know, she had several homes in, in, in Cincinnati and one over in Newport Beach. Her summer home there was named Mary Mott. But Indian Hill is where the Emory family made a huge investment, Peter Loon Estate, and it was basically horse grounds. That's where people went to ride. And it was one of those places where it was well outside of community in terms of downtown. The air was fresh. Um, those people didn't have a lot of choices in terms of where they went. The fact that there was a connection with Mary Emory, they started coming to... Marymount early on. Um, I think that made a difference because one thing I haven't shared with you is that on the northern border of Marymount, you know, every rich community has its working class suburbs, and right to the north of Marymount is a very, very average community, and right to the north of that is another very, very average community. Obviously, they didn't help But there was that connection with Indian Hill. And then part of our school system, a community down the road, Terrace Park, it's one of the four blue-blood communities in Cincinnati. And so that helped, too, because that was very much like Indian Hill. But instead of living on three to five acres with a tremendous amount of open space, even more so than riversides, but it's a state living, Terrace Park was more like a Chautauqua, if you're familiar with Chautauqua, or more more of a Victorian community uh, where the lots were uh, very attractive, a lot of wooden homes, and so that population also came to Marymount. There wasn't any other place really for them to go on a frequent basis. And then Mary Emery stature, I think um, uh, Charles Livingood lived nearby in Hyde Park. Yeah. East Walnut Hills, I'm sorry. Uh, you mentioned that Riverside was not uh, successful initially. What about Marymount? Was that successful initially? Yeah, Marymont had a lot of people right off the bat because it was a very affordable community, and an emphasis was put on schools right off the bat. And an emphasis was really placed on trying to create open space for those kids and the amenities, that type of thing. So Marymont, yes, was successful. However, with the Depression, And then the advent of World War II, there wasn't any significant construction in Marymount for about 15 years. So Marymount, especially in the area um, that was on the, what I'll call, curvilinear side of the the village, uh, the overlooks, um, the bell tower, the Dogwood Park area, that really grew post-World War II. And it's grown ever since then um it's always been a community that's been in demand because of the special life it's a little idyllic even though you can buy a house there for as little as $150,000, or you can buy a house there for over a million you can work there you can play there we're a complete community there we're not a suburb per se in terms of just residential we are a community that's like a small city yeah very special Thank you for your presentation. It was really interesting. In both cities, you talk a lot about the design, the original designs of um, not only the streets, but also the buildings itself. Can you talk a little bit further about the new design standards that have been implemented, I'm assuming, in both communities? Well, this is interesting. I can't really speak. I might let the mayor speak a little bit to the design in Riverside. Uh, I was a member for 10 years and former chairman of the architectural review board uh... unfortunately the architecture review board was only concerned about the historic district so those beautiful condos that i showed you and even uh... that one photo of people eating um, at the dilly dally um, that was all done basically through the planning commission and some negotiations but we've been blessed that we've had developers who have come to Marymount who understood its heritage uh... the fellow who designed what was an old kroger store and built basically two-level retail, put in a Starbucks, put in the Dilly Dally Cafe, put in some retail shops. He went and took his architect to England for a month, and they just traveled. And I remember talking to the architect, who's now actually our building commissioner part-time, and I said, Dennis, I'm going to England. Where should I go? He said, go to Chester, England. It's Marymount times 10. I said, there is no Marymount times 10. He said, there is. There was. Yeah, yeah. So the architectural heritage... We guard that very carefully, but we've been blessed also. And quite frankly, this is interesting because we've wanted to extend that historic district, and we've wanted to do that, but people haven't been in favor of it. We've wanted to create a new architectural uh, district that was gonna be basically preservation-oriented. Residents haven't liked that. So for all our heritage, we've really had some pushback. People think that you're gonna regulate their homes and on the architectural review board we always had the philosophy that we want to work with you as long as you respect the heritage that you have so those Sheldon Close and Albert Place, we want all the same roofs. We don't want one that's red, one that's black, one that's stone, one that's shingled, that type of thing. But a lot of it is negotiation if it's not in the historic district. Mayor, is there anything that you want to add about Riverside?
2: Well, Riverside's basically been fully built out for 60, 70 years, so there's not been a lot in the way of development. Um, We guard our history and our heritage. Seven, eight years ago, there was a little bit of a movement towards uh, density brings development. And from a planning concept, I, I support density, but it has to be appropriate for the community. So there was quite a backlash uh, in our commercial area that, that was for high, more, more dense development. And the community really felt it was not in scale for Riverside. It's in scale for the community next door or another community. So it's, um, it's really a, – a, a, there's always a tension between guarding and protecting your history and heritage and looking to the future. And um, as elected officials, it's, it's a tough balance. But you, you always, always have to look back and why are we special – we're special because of who we
0: are. So thank you. I think for the sake of time, we'll let that be the final word. But maybe, as Frank mentioned, if you have some questions you want to take offline, I think he's going to stay around for a few minutes to talk. But let's have a final round of applause here for Frank Rayon. Thank Thank you,
1: David. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.
0: On behalf of the American Planning Association, I want to thank Frank Rayon for a thought-provoking and informative program on Riverside, Illinois, and Maramont, Ohio. Thanks also to the many APA staff members who help make this program possible every month. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. I'm David Morley.